Well, there's an interesting verse in the book of Romans chapter 11. In the middle of an unveiling of the sovereign plans of God and history, uh, a, a text that talks about God's his salvation and his judgment regarding Israel and the nations, the author tells us to take a step back and to observe something, to take note of something. Romans 11:22 says this. It says, "Note then the kindness and the severity of God." Note the kindness and the severity of God. Now, when we think of kindness, we think of what? The warmth of friendship. We think of generosity, of love. But the word severity, on the other hand, well, it communicates almost a certain sternness. One needs to be thoughtful of how you conduct yourself around someone who is who is stern or, or severe. You don't want to cross such a person who is described in this way. Now, what may strike us as odd is that these two things, kindness and severity, are describing the same being, God. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Well, why is this important for us? Why is this important for you to think about this morning? Well, for one, we need to know the God who is, the real God, the true God. We need to know him for who he is. Otherwise, we're just wasting our time. We're, we're playing games with an imaginary being that, that exists only in our minds. We need to know the God who is as he has revealed himself definitively in his word. God is not an ever-changing being who shifts shapes according to our whims and desires. He is who he is. As he told Moses, as we thought about last week, he revealed himself with, I am who I am. So we, know, we, need, we need to know the real and the true God. But also, it's important for us to note the kindness and the severity of God because so much distortion in religion, so much unhealthy imbalance in our relationship with God comes about when we fail to give either one of these things their due weight. When God's kindness is, is emphasized, but his severity is forgotten, or when God's severity is emphasized and his kindness is forgotten, what happens? We get a distorted view of God, an unhealthy relationship with God. Now, many people who overemphasize God's severity, they miss out on so much of the comfort that we're meant to derive from his kindness. They live in, in constant fear of, of slipping up and they cower before God as though he were as unpredictable as a lightning strike and might strike them at any moment. They, they dry up and wither spiritually like a flower that is withered from receiving no water. The joy of their salvation is nowhere to be found. They, they languish, they produce little good fruit and little good testimony in the world because all they see is the severity of God and they, they've lost sight of his kindness. They risk forgetting the gospel. They risk forgetting the Savior and his salvation. 
and living according to the covenant of works rather than the covenant of grace. Others go to the opposite extreme and they, they emphasize the kindness of God, but they forget the severity of God. Romans eleven twenty two says, note both the kindness and severity of God, but the, this is probably the vast majority of evangelical Christians today. They tend to emphasize that God is kind and he's, he's gracious and he's patient, but they forget to note his severity. And, and God gets distorted. He's, he's our, our friend, but he's not so much our Lord. He's our father, but he's not our father who is in heaven. And they fail to properly respect God's holiness. And they end up setting themselves up for a whole lot of pain, the pain of God's fatherly discipline, which could have been avoided if they hadn't been so careless. We need to note both the kindness and the severity of God. Now, I start with this this verse in, in Romans, because it's a good segue into our text in Exodus today. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 4. And in this text this morning, we see side by side both the kindness and the severity of God. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Exodus 4. Exodus 4, page 44 in the Pew Bibles. Page 44 in the Pew Bible, Exodus chapter 4, as we continue our study through the book of Exodus. And here, in this part of the story, uh, God has recently appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and we, we find God's newly commissioned prophet charged by God to go to Egypt and lead God's people, Israel, out of their slavery and bondage in Egypt. And on the road to Egypt... Moses gets a taste both of the kindness and the severity of God. We'll begin reading our text this morning in verse 19. Exodus 4, starting in verse 19. Uh, And if you have your place, please stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy word. Exodus 4, beginning in verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. 
And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And we'll stop there. You may be seated. So this morning, here's where we're going. We're going to note, first of all, as our first point, the kindness of God, and then secondly, the severity of God. The kindness of God and the severity of God. So as we begin, note, first of all, the kindness of God towards his servant Moses. And then we'll consider God's kindness toward us as well. So God's kindness in general is this. Like, here's the big picture. He's, he's patient with sinners like us, giving us salvation at such a great cost and showering us with blessings that we don't deserve. And God's kindness in particular in this passage, in this text, as we zoom in on the the rich details of his golden generosity, we see, first of all, that he gave Moses comforting words of reassurance. He gave Moses comforting words of reassurance. We see this in verse 19, where we read, And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now, in Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, it had become clear that God would not take no for an answer. Moses would be the one who would go to Egypt and bring up his people in spite of all of Moses' reluctance. And Moses finally, at the end of that conversation, he finally given in. God's uh, persistence had overcome Moses' resistance. And Moses, uh, you know, we, we read in verse 18 last week how he went to his father-in-law and he requested leave, you know, out of, out of respect. Also, you know, his father-in-law was his employer, so basically he's putting in his resignation. But it seems like after Moses did this, reality began to set in, like, oh my, what have I just done? What am I doing? You know, as he began to think through going back to Egypt, and perhaps the thought occurred, well, why did I leave Egypt in, in the first place? Pharaoh was out to kill me because I had killed that Egyptian taskmaster. And all of these perhaps new fears began to flood into Moses' mind. But God, he reassures Moses by telling him, go back to Egypt. And then he says, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. God didn't have to tell Moses that. He could have just said, Moses, go back to Egypt because I said so. But God in his kindness, he comforts Moses by letting Moses know, Moses, the men who are seeking your life, all of them are dead. Go back to Egypt. So we see, first of all, God gives Moses these comforting words of reassurance. And God, God reassures us as well. He reassures us as well. He, he, and we see, we see another thing that God does in this text is he tells Moses what to expect. When he goes to Egypt, he says, 
I'll, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, we'll address the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in a future message because this is going to come up again in the book of Exodus. And it may sound odd to some of you that God would harden someone's heart, make them stubborn to, to resist this, this call to let the people of Israel go. Uh, but we'll, we'll address that in a future message. For now, let me just remind you that the judge of all of the earth always does right. And though his ways at times are, are difficult for us to understand, he's never unjust or unrighteous in his dealings with people. And we can be confident, we can trust that where, where we don't quite understand, if we truly knew, if we truly saw things from God's perspective, there would be nothing that we could truly complain about if we knew the whole truth of the matter. But, but just as, as you think about that, those verses, verses 21 through 23, as God tells Moses what to expect, that Pharaoh's not going to listen. Why does he tell that to Moses to begin with? Well, he's, he's graciously showing Moses what to expect so that Moses isn't surprised when he goes and he's, he tells Pharaoh what God has told him and Pharaoh refuses. God is letting Moses know, hey, Moses, this is all part of the plan and I am still in control. Even, even when Pharaoh doesn't listen, I'm in control still. So don't panic He's, he's comforting Moses. He, he's showing Moses that, that Pharaoh's negative response doesn't mean that God's plan was failing. And in God's kindness, he, he teaches us what to expect as well, and he reassures us as well. He informs us as, as believers what to expect as we follow him. Jesus told his followers what to expect ahead of time. He said, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Jesus said, in, in the world, you will have tribulation. It's not always going to be a picnic in the park. You will have tribulation. But then he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God reassures us in his word that in 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In God's kindness, he gave comforting words of reassurance to Moses, and he gives them to us as well. But we also see that he, he gave Moses sufficient instructions and if we look again at verses 21 through 23, we see more of God's instructions to Moses there. He, he tells Moses what to do before Pharaoh. He tells Moses what to say. God gives sufficient instructions. And God hasn't left us to wonder either. Brothers and sisters, if it is important for you to know, you can be sure that God has revealed it to you in his word. God, God hasn't left part of our mission briefing under a pile of papers on his desk somewhere. Like, oh man, I forgot to tell my people what to do. I, I left this part out. 
Now they're going to, I'm going to have to, I mean, I'm going to have to give them some kind of continuing revelation, some, some new word of prophecy, because I, I forgot to, to include this part. And if I don't, they'll just be stumbling around through this world and they won't know the will of God for them. No, brothers and sisters, God has given us all that we need to know in his word. The scriptures are sufficient. There's no need for him to give further words from the Lord or continuing revelations. God hasn't neglected to give you what you need to know and what is necessary for life and godliness. If he hasn't told you in his word, then it's not something that you need to know. He says in in 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be, and then what does it say? Mostly equipped? Partially prepared? No, it says that, that the man of God may be complete. What does that mean? Well, it means that there's nothing more to be added. You're ready, you're complete, you're, you're thoroughly furnished. And then what does it say? For, for some good works? No, it says complete, equipped for every, every good work. In God's kindness, he gave Moses sufficient instructions and he gives us sufficient instructions as well. If we will read carefully and prayerfully. But that wasn't all. In God's kindness, he also gave Moses divine empowerment. Notice in verse 20 that Moses set out with the staff of God in his hand. Moses' shepherd's staff had become God's staff. And with it, Moses would work God's wonders, convincing the people of Israel of God's power, ushering in the plagues that would be God's divine judgment on Egypt, dividing the waters of the Red Sea so that God's people could cross in safety ahead of the pursuing Egyptian armies. God didn't send his servant to complete this task of deliverance without his divine help, his divine empowerment to see it through. And in God's kindness, he helps us as well. First, uh, 2 Peter 1.3, speaking to believers, says this. It says that God, that, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, as the CSB puts it, everything required for life and godliness. He has given us through his divine power. Everything everything we need. This is the God who, as Hebrews 13, 20 says, equips you with everything good that you may do his will. Everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. If there's a temptation, he ensures that we're not tempted above that which we're able. But as 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It says just before that, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able. This is the God who gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. 
Isaiah 40, 29. And who gives us his Holy Spirit to, to all who have trusted in him. God has given us his spirit to indwell us, to sanctify us, to keep us, and to teach us to do his will and give us strength through every trial. God in his kindness gave Moses divine empowerment as we see uh, signified and symbolized in that staff of God which was in his hand. And he empowers us to do his will as well. And in God's kindness, as we see in this text, uh, still thinking about his kindness, we also want to notice that God gave Moses companionship his, in his brother Aaron and also in his wife Zipporah. And he better be thankful he brought Zipporah on this trip because she would soon save his life. But consider the happy reunion of these two brothers, long separated, in verses 27 and 28. Now, don't be thrown off by the fact that they kissed each other. That was just a, a common uh, brotherly greeting in this time. But the, the point of, of letting us know that is God is showing us that this was a, a happy reunion. I mean, we're not told how long it had been. It may have been several decades since Aaron had seen his younger brother, Moses. But God had accommodated Moses' human frailty and given him a partner, a, a companion, to help him as he confronted Pharaoh. He'd given, him Moses, he'd given him Aaron. God would help Moses directly, but also indirectly through the companionship of a brother. And, and brothers and sisters, God has given us companionship as well. In his kindness, God not only gave companionship to Moses, but to us as well in the local church. The local church is the main source of godly companionship that God has provided for lonely Christians. The main source of, of, of help and strength that God has provided for weak Christians and for all Christians. We all, all of us, need the local church. Uh, and the New Testament has, really doesn't have a category for a Christian who is not connected with some particular body of believers with whom they gather regularly. As Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but, but gathering together to stir one another up, to encourage each other, to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. To encourage each other, and as Hebrews 3.13 says, to exhort one another daily, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The, the local church, this is God's, God's gift of companionship for us as believers. Uh, under the oversight of biblically qualified elders who are called to lovingly shepherd the flock of God which is among them, 1 Peter 5 in God's kindness, he provides this companionship for us. And may we not neglect his gifts, but lean into deep, real, authentic, refreshing, and at times, yes, challenging and sanctifying relationships within the local church. And so we see God was kind to his servant Moses by giving him comforting words of reassurance Sufficient instructions, divine empowerment, brotherly companionship, 
And for all of those who believe, they will find that God's golden cup of kindness hasn't been emptied since the days of Moses. But for all that's been poured out so generously from generation to generation, century after century, God's cup of kindness is still just as full for us today as well, for all who are in Christ. So take note of the kindness of God. But secondly, secondly, let's note the severity of God in this text. The severity of God towards sin, both in Pharaoh and in his servant Moses. And when I say severity, don't think that I mean that God is, is, that he goes overboard, that he goes too far. Sometimes when we think of humans being severe, the idea is that they, they're going too far, that whatever they're getting upset about is out of proportion. Their, their reaction was too severe. But this is not the case when we're talking about God's severity. What we see here in this passage and throughout the Bible is that God takes sin very seriously. God takes sin very seriously, much more seriously than you and I do. And so we need to be reminded, God takes sin seriously and his, his response to sin is severe, appropriately severe. It's justly severe. It's righteously and fittingly severe. You don't want to cross swords with the Almighty God. You will get cut. And if you persist, you will die. With, what, with, with respect to what God is, is capable of, you know, sometimes people get this idea in their minds when they, when they lose sight of God's severity, they, they only see his kindness. They, they, they fail to obey Romans eleven twenty two 22 and, and note both the kindness and severity of God. We can get this idea in our minds that God is kind of like an old, an old grandfather in the sky. You know, he's up on his, on his heavenly recliner and his eyesight is failing and his heart is full of warmth, but he's, he's kind of an old pushover. Uh, you know, easily, easily taken advantage of. He's, he's as feeble as he is kind. But brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. Note the kindness and the severity of God. With, with respect to what God is capable of, he's, he's less, much less like that old grandfather in the sky and much more like the lion Aslan in, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. In that, in the, like Aslan, he's, he's capable of great kindness. He's able to be gentle with the weak, but also he's able, like that lion, to kill in an instant those who oppose him. As one character from those movies said of Aslan the lion, that, that though good, he's good, but he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. So also God, he is good, and yet he is not a tame, domesticized God. He can strike. He can kill. And he cannot and will not be commanded or penned up or put on a leash by anything or anyone. And we witness God's severity against sin, his just and holy and right and, and fitting severity against sin, and his judgment of which Moses was to warn Pharaoh in verses 22 and 23. Look with me there. 
God tells Moses, he says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now the Lord reveals here that he was adopting the people of Israel as his son, his firstborn son. And in that day and time, the firstborn son had a special relationship to his father. He would be expected to serve his father for a time. As as God says here, let my son go that he may serve me. But he would also receive the, the lion's share of the inheritance. He would, be, uh, he would be the beneficiary of his father's estate, his, the father's blessing. And with this message to Pharaoh, God is essentially telling Pharaoh like, hey, you've, you've got my son. You've got my son. And he's serving you, but let him go that he may serve me. Those people that you think you own, that are slaving away and languishing in your labor camps, they're mine. Let them go now. They belong to God. They were his. And if Pharaoh had the audacity to stand between, between God and what belonged to God, to refuse the father, his son, then the results would be disastrous for Pharaoh Pharaoh would lose his own firstborn son if he didn't release God's, which, of course, is exactly what happened. Pharaoh didn't take God seriously. He didn't note the severity of God. Pharaoh would respond with, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? He would soon be eating those words. He thought he could defy God and continue oppressing and enslaving and killing God's people. And that when it was all said and done, he would get away with it. That this God, if he was even real, was all bark and no bite. We see God's severity in the judgment predicted for Pharaoh. But we also see God's severity in this text in his discipline of Moses. Look with me again at verses 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Let's try and walk through this very odd story, and see what's going on here. See if we can make some sense of it. At a lodging place or an inn along the route from Midian to Egypt, it says that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And verse 24 says, and, and we're not told initially why. This, this verse kind of comes out of nowhere like, whoa, what's going on here? We thought Moses, he's on his way to Egypt, and then all of a sudden, he's on the brink of death. And there's some mystery and some suspense for the reader. What has Moses done? Why is God so angry with his servant who, it seems, has finally done, begun to do what God has commanded? He's, he's finally going to Egypt like God had told him to. Well, perhaps the way this is written, it captures some of the surprise and shock that Moses felt as he was bedding down that night 
and the Lord met him. We're not told of the method that God sought to, to kill Moses. Perhaps it was a uh, you know, sudden paralysis or, or seizure or some kind of illness that they quickly understood, like, this is not, this isn't Satan. This isn't just some common illness. This is God, God has met with Moses and he's seeking to kill him. They, they understood that very quickly. But whatever the case may be, it seems certain from these verses that, that Moses was out of commission. He's, he's basically laid out, helpless, on, at death's door. Because Zipporah, his wife, she's the one who really takes all the action. She's the one that's doing things and saying things in, this, in these verses, in this story. She's the one who circumcises their young son, which ordinarily would have been the father's job. So Zipporah seems to be the only one capable of doing anything as her, her husband is, is frozen with fear or weakened through his uh, perhaps sudden illness. Now, interestingly, Zipporah seems to know what this is about. If the Lord is angry with her husband, she seems to know why God would be angry with her husband. And immediately in the next verse, she takes action. She conducts this emergency circumcision operation on their son. And if we read between the lines, uh, perhaps this was something that, that Zipporah and, and Moses kind of knew needed to be done. Perhaps they, they had known like, oh yeah, we, maybe we should do that, but oh, I don't know. Is it really that important? They neglected to do it. But now at this moment of crisis, the light bulb goes off in Zipporah's mind. She, she knows exactly what needs to be done. She knows exactly what needs to be done. So she sees her husband at death's door. She connects the dots rather quickly, it seems, and she takes action. And the result, the Lord relents. Once their son is circumcised and Zipporah touches Moses' feet with the bloody foreskin, which is probably meant to identify him with the act, you know, as, as he's unable to do it himself, well, this is a, maybe a last-ditch effort to try to have this emergency obedience count for her and her husband both. And we read in verse 26, so he let him alone. This tells us something. It tells us that, that God's meeting with Moses to put him to death, it had to do with this circumcision that had failed that, that they hadn't done up to this point, that they neglected to do. God had commanded circumcision to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 17. And prior to the coming of Christ, before Jesus came and initiated the new covenant, back before Jesus came, in these old covenant times, circumcision was very important. It was, it was a, a, an important aspect of the old covenant. It marked out the Israelite males as members of the people of God, members of the covenant. Listen to what God had said back in Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And God would go on to say, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin 
shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So those who, those who weren't circumcised under the old covenant were to be cut off from Israel, cut off from God's people as a covenant breaker. And being cut off from the people under the Israelite theocracy likely would have meant the death penalty. So circumcision, get this, under the old covenant, this was a matter of life and death. This was an important thing. God was emphasizing this very clearly. And yet Moses had neglected to fulfill this important covenant sign with his own sons. And it almost cost him his life. But praise God for a good wife. And when Moses set out for Midian and brought his wife along, little did he know that she'd save his life along the way. But God knew. And in God's, we we can even see here, even in God's discipline, we can see even the kindness of God shining through, can't we? Because if God really meant to kill Moses, he would have kept Zipporah back. But in God's kind providence, he made sure that Zipporah came on that journey and was ready to intervene and to intercede on behalf of her disobedient husband. So, just a word to husbands here. Men, lead your family spiritually. Don't, don't neglect obedience. Uh, don't, don't put your wives in situations where they're having to kind of pick up the pieces of your passivity. Read God's word, study God's word, and, and lead your families in obedience to God's word. Don't, don't leave that on your wives. But I, this, this story, I'm sure we could talk more about it. I'm sure there's all kinds of things that we could discuss, but what's the point of it? That's, how does it speak to us? What, what's God's lesson in it for Moses? And what ought we to learn from it this morning? I mean, we're no longer obligated to the right of circumcision. The New Testament makes that abundantly clear. And just read the book of Galatians. Well, here was Moses. Here was Moses on his way to bring to pass God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their offspring. And in hypocritical fashion, he hadn't even circumcised his own sons. In failing to do this, Moses was treating God's covenant lightly. Like, it's, like it was really not all that important. I'm not, I'm not even, I haven't even circumcised my own sons, but I'm on my way to bring God's covenant promises to pass. It, it seemed like Moses, not only being, was he being hypocritical here, but he was presuming upon the kindness of God, it seems, to the point of using it as an excuse for disobedience. I mean, they knew, if God was angry with, that, with Moses, Zipporah knew why. She knew it, it had something to do with what they'd neglected to do up to that point. But it seems like they had become comfortable and just thinking, well, God will, God will overlook this. You know, maybe, it's not, maybe it's not really that big of a deal. Do we ever do this? Do we ever presume upon God's patience? Do we treat certain of God's commands as kind of unimportant? You know, it, this or that, it can't really be that big of a deal. We neglect to live them out because, well, God is gracious. He's, he's full of forgiveness. I mean, we all fall short, right? 
We all fall short. Nobody's perfect. And, and brothers and sisters, it is true. We do all fall short. But as God teaches Moses and us, that's, that's not anything to just shrug off. That's not a minor problem. We need to watch out for this attitude. We need to beware this attitude. It should, it should flash like a code red warning light in our consciences if we ever think that, ah, oh, well, you know, it's probably not that big of a deal. I can, I can put this off. I can neglect to obey. If we fall into that kind of attitude, it shows that we've lost a proper reverence for God. We have lost a proper reverence for God. Yes, we do all fall short. Yes, God is patient with our failings daily. But let us not presume upon that patience and take it for granted and treat it and treat disobedience like it's no big deal. If we become apathetic to obedience, that shows that we're taking lightly the discipline of the Lord, which the scriptures tell, tell us not to do. Don't, don't regard God's discipline as lightly. Don't take, it, don't take his discipline as no big deal. Moses found out the hard way. Don't treat compromise and disobedience as a minor thing. We read in the New Testament in the days of the apostles that some of the early Christians evidently in the early church were taking God's discipline lightly. They, they had perhaps lost sight of the severity of God. They were presuming upon his patience and kindness. They had lost a proper reverence and respect for God's holiness. And we read in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, um, starting in verse 17. Now, just for context, this was the, the church in Corinth. And there had been an outbreak of illness in the church in Corinth, and some of their church members had died. And the Apostle Paul, he, he traces it back to their attitude towards the Lord's Supper. They had no respect or reverence for God in the Lord's Supper. Instead, they were bringing their sinful quarrels and favoritism to the Lord's table. They were despising those who belonged to their church and belonged to Christ. And they were humiliating those who had nothing, Paul says. They were, they were using the, the Holy Supper as an opportunity to get drunk and to make other Christians who they, they kind of looked down upon feel bad as they, as they hoarded the elements to themselves and left nothing else for those who had nothing. And because they were treating the Lord's Supper so lightly and taking these, the, these sins so lightly, God got their attention with this illness. The, the sickness began to spread. Some of them began to die. Some of them, listen to that, some of them, as Paul said, some of you have died as a result. Now, we need to be careful here because the Bible doesn't connect every sickness to God's discipline. If, if one of our church members starts dealing with illness, we shouldn't look at them and say, oh, they, God must be disciplining them. They must have some kind of hidden sin. That shouldn't be our first assumption. The Bible is, is careful to show that sometimes even if you are doing everything right, even if you're trusting God, sometimes sickness comes. 
And it's not necessarily directly connected to, to discipline. But there are times when God will discipline his children using physical illness or other forms of suffering, as we see in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, were these people going to hell? Were these like non-Christians who snuck into the church? Well, no. We read in, in verse 32. Well, I'll, I'll go back to verse 30. First, this is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 30 through 32. Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along Condemned along with the world. So God's Well, we're about out of time, so Here, here's, our, here's the lesson, though. Brothers and sisters, note the kindness and the severity of God. Find comfort in God's kindness and fear his discipline. Find comfort in God's kindness, and at the same time, don't take his discipline lightly. Have a proper respect for it. And, and in closing, let's just note Let's note the kindness and severity of God in Christ Jesus, our Savior. In his first coming, Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save. He, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We see the kindness of God, and yet when he comes again, the resurrected Christ will come again to judge the world in righteousness, which will mean death and condemnation and the lake of fire for sinners who do not repent. And to many, they will hear Jesus on that day say, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But friends, that day is not yet. Today is still the day of salvation. And so 
Friends, note the kindness of God towards us in Christ, our Savior. In the text that we've considered this morning, there's a, a line where, where God says, he calls Israel his firstborn son, and he says, let my son go that he may serve me. But just a spoiler alert, once Pharaoh does finally let Israel go, do they, do they go and serve God? No, they, they go and worship the golden calf. They, they are disobedient sons. They don't serve their father. Israel, this, this son of God, as it were, fails to be a true son of God. But that's not where the story ends. Hebrews 11.1, 1, it, it speaks of Israel in this way. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son and then the New Testament comes, and Jesus comes. And Matthew 2 takes this prophecy and takes this, this idea of, of Israel as the Son of God. It applies it to Jesus. He is, he is the true Israel, the true Israelites. He is the true Son of God. And Matthew 2 quotes this prophecy, Out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus was the firstborn of God who came the perfect son of God who served his father perfectly, the faithful son that Israel had, had failed to be, Jesus came and he was that faithful son. He served his father perfectly. And unlike Israel and unlike Moses, as we've seen this morning, he, he obeyed his father perfectly in every respect. And for what? Why did God take on human flesh and keep his own law? It was to show us his kindness he served the Father perfectly where we fail. And then he went to the cross and suffered the penalty for our disobedience. The full weight of that condemnation and wrath. He, he took that cup of righteous indignation, of hatred against evil, our evil. And he drank it dry. So that all, all of us could have another cup. The cup of God's kindness for all of eternity. And so, friend, if, if you're here this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to, I want to warn you, if you're, not, if you're not in Christ, if you're not trusting in Him, as 1 John 5 says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, Christ, does not have life. You may have a lot of good deeds this morning. You may have a lot of good intentions, but do you have the Son of God? Do you have Jesus? Are you trusting in Him and Him alone as your Savior and Lord? If not, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And you will know and experience the kindness of God through all eternity. Let's pray.